Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hi, welcome to InSync, the podcast that explores the history and impact of some of your favorite music moments in TV and film. I'm your host, Rachel Brodsky. And I'm Aviv Rubenstein. Today we are going to talk about one of Rachel's all-time favorite needle drops and one of her all-time favorite shows, Sia's Breathe Me in the series finale of Six Feet Under. And a little later in the show, we're going to talk to Gary Calamar and Thomas Golubich, the music supervisors for Six Feet Under, about how this needle drop came to be. But first, a little background on the show, the song, and the artist. Just a quick note. In our conversation about Six Feet Under, I mispronounced Thomas Golubich's name a couple of times. Uh, I learned the proper pronunciation after we recorded, so I'm sorry to Thomas for sounding like a bit of an unprepared ass. All that and more on this episode of InSync. Okay, so t- tell me how you came to love Six Feet Under like you do. Okay, this is a pretty good story, I think. Um, so I didn't have HBO. So Six Feet Under is one of the first uh, prestige, I guess, TV dramas in the early days of um, HBO's launch into prestige not HBO. Dra- yeah, not, yeah it, it's in the pantheon of great early 2000s. TV shows on HBO kind of came out around the same time as um, The Sopranos and uh, Sex and the City, though I don't think it gets talked about as no- enough as much as those other two shows. Um, yes. The way that I came into the show was that I was studying abroad in London. I got sick all the time. It's like any, it's like I got, I came down with like the worst colds of my life and I and in one week I had horrible horrible food poisoning and I basically spent the entire week in bed just watching illegally downloading and watching um episodes of six feet under and <laughs> I th- <laughs> the cops are at the door yeah um but here. I think the statute of limitations has passed because this was like 2007 that's what you think yeah <laughs> so um I basically streamed the entire series that week, um, just binge the whole thing, and it is now my comfort show. Interesting. I've since seen it probably I don't even know how many times, at least five, six, seven times. It's um, an interesting comfort show for sure because it's very <laughs> much about death and die. Yes, but it's also one of the most touching and poignant shows. I think, like, yes, it's technically about death and dying this is a show that is is a drama about a family that take that runs a family business that happens to be a funeral home and you learn a lot about embalming <laughs> <laughs> lots of things that i think jewish kids don't get to learn about because that's very true uh, because, we... Jew- <laughs> because jewish families don't historically embalm their mm-hmm. dead no <laughs> so it, it's a dark show it's a really funny show it's a character driven show and you basically see this this group of people, some of whom are part of the family and some of whom are uh, friends of the family and co-workers with the family, um, in these sort of a snapshot of like five years out of this family's life and, and, what, and what each of them go through and how they grow. And I love character-driven shows. Yeah, I, you'll hear in a little bit about kind of the, the sweet spot that uh, Six Feet Under hit between being like morbid you know, there's con- there's death in every episode. They're talking about embalming and, you know, what happens to a body as it's decomposing. And also, like, weirdly very life-affirming in certain That's why ways. I love it. Yeah. That's why I love it. It, it, it. It's a show that grows with you um, as I have watched it repeatedly over the last maybe 13 years of my life. It's, it's something where you kind of, like, 
you like when I was younger, I identified with like the youngest daughter, Claire, Claire. played, cl- played yeah. by Lauren Ambrose because oh. I was around her age. The great when Lauren Ambrose, the great Lauren Ambrose, soon to appear in Yellow Jackets. Um, but then as I as I get older, I identify with and 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 empathize with you know characters who are, who are more in their thirties, and I, I love yeah. the way that it's not often that you watch a show where you feel like you're growing with the characters, or the characters grow with you, and and you also get to kind of pass through the, the characters in their stages of their life, which is very, quite yeah, interesting. Yeah, exactly. So it's a very life-affirming show. It's very funny. It points out <laughs> just a lot of yes. really... Um, it's very absurd, and I'm I'm a, a great lover of absurdism, and like yes. anything that kind of points out, like just sort of skewers things that you do in everyday life. And yeah, things are, that are supposed to be serious. But we're talking specifically not about the whole show. This will be a love fest on Six Feet Under, don't you worry. But we're talking about one needle drop specifically, which is the one that everyone talks about on this show. Yes, yes. Uh, so this show did a great job across the board with music. And it, it's probably, as Aviva saying, talked about the most for its series finale, which aired in 2005. And the, the season, or the series finale, I should say, closed out with a very famous song by a very famous singer. Uh, Sia's Breathe Me ends the entire series. Can't take a picture of this, it's already gone. So this this is a, a famous song, right? This song became probably much much more famous because of specifically this the way it was used in this episode. So Sia is uh, an Austra- Australian singer songwriter. Um, today she's definitely best known for her 2014 hit Chandelier. Um, probably also that Keith Thrills. Fucks. That song's so good. It, it definitely holds up. Um, but in 2004, Sia was probably better known in, in the uh, indie scene. She had provided vocals in the British duo's Zero Seven. She was in a jazz band called Crisp. Her first solo album, Only See, dropped in 1997. And then she followed that up with um, Healing is Difficult. That came out in 2001. But Breathe Me um, was on her third solo album, arguably her breakout album, Color the Small One. I, I remember Sia, I remember the Sia music video where she put all those condoms on her head, and I, and I knew her as this sort of like freak out artist, and I, and I had no idea, even at the time that I saw this episode, had no idea that this was the same person when was this when, when was the condoms on the head Eric? i think that that was like 2006 or 2007 i didn't see this finale until about 2008 um because i had fallen off of the show when i moved to college and no longer had hbo i think most people identify with her as really having her breakthrough moment in the 2010s and around like around this time where she was not showing her face she had already gone through like a few different like career journeys. By the time she became famous for Chandelier, she had become pretty sought after for writing songs for other artists. She was like 
I, you know, I don't want to be in the spotlight anymore. Um, she has spoken about her journeys with like, mental health, and I think she, you know, she felt her anxiety and depression and so on um, was just not suitable for a life in the spotlight. So that's basically why she, in, in the 2010s, started um, writing specifically more for, you know, more in the spotlight artists, like I think like Katy Perry is one, and Brianna, and uh, many other She's probably made more, written more of the hits, more hits than than you know her from. Yes. Yeah. That being said, um, Chandelier, I think, was one that she wanted to keep for herself, if memory serves. And then it kind of took on a life of its own. And then um, more recently, she has, uh, I mean, she's since then Chandelier took off, she's done just, just a ton of hit collaborations like Titanium with David Guetta. Uh, I, know, I didn't know that was her. That, that, I know that song from um, mm-hmm. Pitch Perfect. <laughs> that is very much her. She, I think more recently, though, has come under a little fire for <laughs> a movie she put out yes. recently. Talking called, about musicians and movies. Yes, um, called Music, which I did not see. I have no plans to see it. I it. it. it, um, it, it starred her uh, muse, Maddie Ziegler, who I think she was on Dance Moms. And Maddie Ziegler is the girl from the new West Side Story, right? No, I think that's Rachel Ziegler. <sighs> I'll just go fuck myself. We'll have, we'll have then to. I, I didn't realize that those were two different people. Maddie Ziegler was in an HBO movie recently with, ooh, what's, Z- her, what's her name? Oh, she's like blonde. Yeah, this is a totally different totally person. Totally different person. Maybe she was oh, in wait, West Side Story. They're both in West Side Story. <laughs> so you were right. Holy shit. I'm sorry. No, it's cool. Um, uh, it, it makes sense because Maddie Ziegler became really well known when she was only about 12 for being this like terrific dancer. And uh, I actually interviewed her once uh, back oh, in cool. 2014 and uh, thought she was remarkably self com- um, well composed for a for like girl. a teenager, for like a right? girl. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and um, anyhow, Maddie Ziegler is this. This well, she's no longer a kid, but at the time, um, I think sh- sh- her appearing as a dancer in sh- the vi- music video for Chandelier became so went so viral that um it was like maddie basically appeared in like every other um sia video like from that era yeah yeah and anyway she has since appeared in the movie music playing um a uh young girl Mm -hmm. on the spectrum Mm -hmm. she is not actually herself on the spectrum Mm -mm. and um i didn't see the movie but from my vantage point it kind of looked like not the criticism seemed a bit in line with do you do you remember the movie um the other sister yes uh with the uh, other Juliet, Juliet Lewis uh, other yellow jackets cast member Juliet yes. Lewis to me um and that movie got a lot of hate at the time because i mean it was like a it... and this is like 20 years later <laughs> yeah. yeah so yeah. i think i think your your assessment of like this character's on the spectrum is more nuanced than even the performance was which was like from all accounts, once again, if for any of you music stands out there that like love it and think we're way off, neither of us has seen it, so we're talking out of our asses. But it seems like it was just kind of the one note of you know mental mental handicap. Yeah, I mean we've yeah. we have come a long way culturally in the way that we talk about who we should be casting mm-hmm. um, in roles where um, you know the the characters have are either their special needs or they're on the spectrum and um it's it's become the disabled community has a has a motto now that says nothing about us without us hmm. which is I, like yeah so good. i didn't know that yeah so so sia sia has been uh we'll say canceled light for uh for not taking the time to cast uh an actor that is authentically you know and i think also the movie i just heard was not great yeah. <laughs> also true if the movie yeah. was great people would probably overlook yeah, it, it just bit. doesn't help one last thing that i want to say about sia because i'm seeing some notes sia has actually never won a grammy but she has been nominated for nine yeah incredible it's shocking that she didn't win for chandelier it is and in 2021 npr called sia the 21st century's most resilient songwriter resilient is definitely the key word Sia has had many lives as a singer, songwriter, performer, director. <laughs> um, I think we'll be seeing a lot more from Sia. That is, in a nutshell, 
Sia's background. Uh, but in the year 2004, she was fairly uh, not well-known. I mean, she was probably better known in indie music circles, definitely mm-hmm. played on college radio, uh, independent radio, like non-commercial radio. Thus, this is how she ended up on um, Six Gary Feet Calamar's Under. show. On yeah. Gary Calamar's show, correct. So we're going to be talking to Gary Calamar and Thomas Golubic, who were music supervisors on Six Feet Under, about their experience finding this song, getting the song in the in the finale of six feet under and kind of the shock waves that it made in the culture right see his career their careers and the culture at large um because if there's one thing that is true about six feet under it was a cult it was really a cultural touchstone of the early and mid 2000s and and now maybe we can switch gears and talk about finally six feet under let's talk about six, the show is- and how it used music to further the moment that rachel has been waiting for so a brief history of six feet under the show stars peter krause as nate fisher whose father nathaniel senior dies uh and and gives him the the ownership of their family funeral home fisher and son's funeral home to nate their other son david played by pre-dexter michael c hall is very jealous and so there's like this brotherly competition between them um, and they also uh, have to take care of their mom, Ruth Fisher, Fisher, played by Frances Conroy, and their younger sister, Claire Conroy. Claire, I'm oh, sorry, Claire Fisher, played by Lauren Ambrose. When Nate does receive, like I think, half of a stake in of ownership in the the family business, it's like this is something he has run away from his whole life. He never right. wanted to be a funeral director. He has a lot of co- inner conflict about that. And, the reluctant. Um, and uh, it's like he doesn't live in Los Angeles where this family is based. He's currently he's kind of more of someone who like runs, you know, is a bit more free spirit, has lived in many places, held many jobs. Um, and his, his younger brother, who already runs the business with his father, who has since deceased, he has just done what everyone has expected of him. Right. He's got um, I think he, in his heart of heart, hearts, wants to be a lawyer and um, is just kind of just moved into the funeral home business out of a sense of family duty. Right, right. Uh, the show premiered in June of 2001, and it ran until August of 05. It had 63 episodes in total, which, in the grand scheme of things, is not that many episodes when we're talking about network shows that used to do 23 episodes per season. The show focuses, as Rachel mentioned, on mortality and the symbiotic nature of life and death, um, and the death industry those who live off of death right and alan ball the creator of the show who also wrote the screenplay for american beauty he won an oscar for the screenplay for american beauty elaborates on the the main questions of the show's pilot this way he says who are these people who are funeral directors that we hire to face death for us? And what does that do to their own lives? To grow up in a home where there are dead bodies in the basement, to be a child and walk in on your father with a body laying on the table, opening them opened up and him working on it. Like, what would that do to you? So these, these are the questions that Six Feet Under explores throughout its entire run, five season run. But it all starts with the pilot. Cultural critic Sally Munt said one might this is this is as the show is is taking off. Cultural critic Sally Munt said one might risk saying the show has an uncanny or queer rendition of class positions and relations. New York magazine said that the uh, show carefully avoided moralism, but there were times where it felt like um, the message that death has terrible timing but also could be a karmic gift. And Alan Ball said that this was not the the message of the show um, and that there was no message in the story, but only a recognition that death comes in the middle of messy things and doesn't wait around for us to sort out our lives, which is uh, a theme that carries through the entire series, but is no more present than in the finale. Um, the first season averaged about 5 million viewers per episode. Rolling Stone reports that in 2004, the show was averaging $6.2 million per episode. And the final season saw that number drop to 2.5. So compare that with a network show of the time. Friends averaged 24 million viewers per week in 2001. So that's not to say the Six Feet Under wasn't a hit or wasn't relevant. 24, the show, 24, uh, 
premiered in 2001 because of course it did and its first season averaged 8.6 million so for hbo which is a subscription-based service to even come within spitting distance of like a big network show like 24 is huge but this is all to note that hbo shows including like all the way up to this day the most popular ones of all time game of thrones or the sopranos or whatever they live a little more through their cultural and critical significance than how many people watch right yeah, there's zeitgeist here yeah they're water cooler shows if if water coolers still existed <laughs> and, the, and the show's first season received 23 emmy nominations yeah it was highly critically acclaimed incredibly incredibly popular and um it's interesting that i mean now i think this week we the the, the house of the dragon numbers came out and i think it was something like like 10, 10 yeah. million uh viewers which actually you know, is is very very big and yeah and and Network shows have declined, so now like a ten million, a ten million views in a in a week is actually very very good for a network show. When twenty years ago that would have gotten you canceled. It won Golden Globes, it won Screen Actors Guild Awards, and it even won a Peabody for general excellence in its treatment of of death and humanity. So even though it only got five million views per week, the show was like a cultural juggernaut. But I want to take us back to how the show got started, because the finale of the show talks directly to the pilot of the show in a, in an, a really interesting way. So this is from Alan Ball in a Rolling Stone interview from 2015 and the 10 year anniversary of the finale of um, of Six Feet Under. So I'm going to be Alan Ball for a second. Okay. In the fall of 1999, I was working on a television series I created for ABC called Oh, Grow Up, which in retrospect, I'm not sure is a show that I myself would have ever watched. But American Beauty had premiered in September of that year. And so I got a call from the then president of HBO, Carolyn Strauss, asking if I would meet with her for lunch. And that was right about this time that I had discovered The Sopranos. And I was amazed that oh, TV can be like this, right? And this is kind of the first, as Rachel mentioned, the first through the wall, these shows that were prestige and also popular. So, Alan, I met with her, and she told me that she had been thinking about a TV series set in a family-run funeral home, and something in my head just clicked. But I was doing this other show, and I'm not a person who could do two shows at once, so I said, well, good luck with that, and I really like the idea, but I can't because I'm doing this sitcom. And not too long after that, ABC very graciously canceled my show. So Alan went back to Atlanta for Christmas break because, quote, my mom was still alive back then and I just wrote the pilot. I had two years left on my TV deal and people were already calling me and saying, oh, we have this washed up comedian who's going to do his own show and you're the perfect person to write it for him. Or, oh, I have a, a great idea about this guy who dies and is reincarnated as a dog and he gets adopted by his ex-wife. And I thought, I can't go back to that sitcom world. I gave it a shot, but it's not where I want to be. So I wrote the pilot on spec, which is no one asking him to write the pilot. He just did it for free. And I had my agent send it over to HBO. Hey, you know that show we talked about? Well, here's a version of it that I just wrote. Fun fact, however, there was a copyright infringement suit because Alan Ball stated at one point that he came up with the premise of the show after the death, the deaths of his sister and his father. His sister died when he was 13, so we're talking long after the death of his sister. However, in an interview on the series DVD collection, he intimated that HBO president Carolyn Strauss proposed the idea to him and in that 2015 article for Rolling Stone, he just came out and said it. Carolyn Strauss asked me to, to write this thing. But screenwriter Glenn O'Donnell asserted that she was the original source of the idea, and she passed it to Strauss, and Strauss passed it to Alan Ball. And Ball had no knowledge of this, of course. But the U.S. Court of Appeals, Ninth Circuit, proceeding on the assumption that this assertion was true rejected her claim the the assertion that he had written it about his sister and his father which he never repeats like i couldn't find the interview so this is wow. kind of an interesting maybe he got some blowback for yeah i think he that may even have. coming up well see i didn't know any of that yeah um but back to rolling stone after and back to alan ball after they read it, they invited me in, and I went in and met with Carolyn and Chris Albrecht, who was running HBO at the time, and they said, we really like this, but we have a main note for the whole thing. It feels kind of safe. Could you make it more 
fucked up. Yeah, he likes to read. Ellen Ball has retold that anecdote many times. <laughs> Millions of because times. Because there have been um, many oral histories of Six Feet Under and elements to the show since it came out. And that's and every time I see that, can you make it more fucked up? Like, that, that lives on he goes into great detail about talking about like the pilotiness and the networkiness of the show where you know it's this this prodigal son returning and we have a son that runs the home and runs it very well and and delights in kind of order so we have order meets chaos and they don't want to be running this thing together and like what a wacky sitcom idea and so i have to imagine especially coming directly from abc and coming from a sitcom world that the original pilot was like very much in that kind of comedic realm yeah like um a buddy com like a buddy yeah. cop kind of an, an odd couple yeah, sort an of odd thing. couple kind of thing. See, I, I didn't know that either. And see the whole time, like in my timeline of things, I can see how like, oh, uh, uh Island Ball comes from um he he wrote the screenplay for, as you mentioned earlier. American Beauty, which is American deeply Beauty, fucked yeah, which is which uh, the the two programs, like one's a show, one's a movie, but they both kind of operate in like a similar like Family, like yeah. yeah, like how everything looks on the surface versus what it's like underneath. The secrets. And yeah. I don't blame Alan Ball for playing it safe on TV because at this point there are two TV shows that are doing things cinematically. They're, they're like tackling really deep, hard issues and allowing characters to be like fucked up and messy. And so... Yeah, there's not a lot of precedent set yet. Exactly. And so so I think it's like a, a, a really good confluence of events and like luck that like American Beauty was such a huge hit that movie couldn't get made today um, for well, several reasons. for several reasons <laughs> um, and they're like well just like we had you're a TV guy take what you've done in the movies and turn it into TV um, fun fact this is a quote from Alan Ball I don't really write characters with specific actors in mind but once I st- considered casting after the script was finished I was thinking about Christopher Maloney and Justin Thoreau as being the two brothers Nate and David because I thought they looked like siblings and they're both two actors who I really admired and Chris was on Oz on HBO at the time so he was already in the family uh, but Chris got the SVU thing before we went into production so we we narrowly missed out on an alternate universe where Christopher Maloney played Nate. There is actually one episode in the show where they explore an alternate universe. Is that right? Yes. I don't know if I saw that one. Well, um, Peter Krause still plays Nate. himself, yeah. but it's like this alternate universe dream sequence. Oh, that's cool. Where um, he's like, I think I think he's still technically comatose because his character right. has a has a has like a. An embolism or yeah, something. He yeah, he has a AVM. Um, yeah, he he kind of like goes through these different like dream sequences where mm-hmm. he's uh, you know in living like ten different kinds of lives. So on Peter Krause, Peter Krause plays Nate Fisher, and this speaks to like how I came to the show. So I was a big fan of Peter Krause from a show called Sports Night, which was an Aaron Sorkin show on ABC pre West Wing. So this is Krause in um, in Entertainment Weekly. He said, I had done two seasons of Sports Night, and I was disappointed that it didn't get picked up for a third season. Only about a month and a half went by before I was auditioning for Six Feet Under. Alan brought me in to read for both Nate and David, and I couldn't, and he couldn't make up his mind. And as luck had it, he really liked Michael Hall, who was the perfect choice for David, so the character of Nate swung my way. But this story is a lie. This is not the real story. What do you mean? I remember watching. So I remember the reason that I started watching Six Feet Under in the first place was I was homesick from school one day and I was watching The View. And <laughs> as you do. When as, you're as one does. When you're homesick. And Krause was on The View talking about starting Six Feet Under. And he said, I, I, I looked for the clip, but I couldn't find it. He said that sports night had not been canceled yet and he was secretly hoping that it got canceled because he really wanted to do six feet under and i was like how could you <laughs> casey mccall how could you I but have that not is really the exact reason yeah. that i saw that i started watching six feet under that's amazing what's kind of funny is that you know i don't know if you ever saw much parenthood uh, I, so I did watch Parenthood and a So bit. the whole reason why I started watching Parenthood was, was because Nate's it, on it. Because yeah. Nate's on yeah. it and, and also because uh, Lorelai is on it. Uh, Lorelai L- Lauren Graham. I've never seen a single episode of Gilmore Girls. I know. 
I know. We're going to have a talk about This is our that. last episode, everyone. So, yeah, okay. But I was going to say, though, that I think Peter Krautsa gave an interview. I don't have the exact one pulled up, but I do remember him talking about how uh, the whole reason he took um, the role in Parenthood was because it, it was so much... It was just not dark. It was just so. Right. Op- it was just so the opposite of what his uh, role in. Right. Uh, I mean, his character in Six Feet Under deals with with such an immense amount of life change and grief. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Without and getting into specifics, accidentally takes ecstasy in one episode. <laughs> That's actually one of my favorite episodes. It's his favorite episode That's too. <clears throat> yeah. So now let's jump forward to the finale, right? So so now we've we've cast the show, we've created the show, so. Alan Ball in 2004 calls HBO and he says, I'm done. I can't do another season after this upcoming one. And they said, well, then we'll just end the show because it's really not uncommon for showrunners to just leave shows and for networks to replace them. Mm-hmm. And so... And usually the show, when that happens, the show does take a noticeable decline in quality. Absolutely. Uh, the notable exception is Veep, which gets better after Armando Iannucci leaves. Oh, wow. See, I have never really seen oh, too much of Veep. Veep. Veep is it's great. a major blind spot for me, and I don't. I'm not. I don't dislike Amanda Inucci. I love him, in fact. But when David Mendel comes in, that's when the show really gets gets great. So uh, HBO says, "Well, then we'll just end the show." Oddly enough, I did the exact same thing on True Blood, and they kept it running for two more seasons. I think it was because it, True Blood was generating a lot more money for them than Six Feet Under did. Yeah, True Blood came out around a time where vampires were just all everywhere, like like. But these, but unlike Twilight, these vampires had sex. I very graphic sex. Oh, I couldn't do True Blood. I never. I watched like a half of an episode, and I was like, I can't. The first three seasons, it, it gets progressively worse. The first season is fire. The second, <laughs> <I> ha- <laughs> the second season, I I will defend. I really like it. The third season, it starts to get camp, and then everything past the third season is don't is even trash. don't yeah. It's just all. Complete trash. And it just gets progressively trashier. I have to imagine that Alan Ball did True Blood for the same reason that Peter Krause did Parenthood, where it's like, oh, it's not about like death and morbidity and me confronting my mortality. Great. Let's it is do about it. morbidity, but in like a very like different, more fan- fantastical. Right. No <laughs> one's ever really dead. Right? Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting, though. I'd love to talk to him about that someday. Yeah. Alan, yeah. if you're a friend of the show, if you're listening. Um, so Alan Ball goes on to say, I think when you've done 60 episodes and you've told 60 hours worth of story, every show has a shelf life and a lot of them go on way past their shelf life. And that decision, I believe is always financial. It just felt like, I don't know what else we can do with these characters and I'd like to work on something new and I'd like to have something that has a different tone. I don't want to just repeat myself. What do you learn if you do that? You just get really lazy. So... When I convened, Alan still, when I convened with the writers for that last season, because we all knew it was the end, we had to know where everyone was going. And someone in the room said, we should just kill everybody. And I was like, that's funny, whatever. And I wish I could remember who it was because it wasn't me. But they said, no, no, no. We should be with each character at the moment of their death. And when I heard that, I was like, well, of course. I mean, what else can you do? That's the perfect organic ending for the show. So we haven't mentioned that the beginning, the gimmick at the beginning of every episode of the show was a cold open where you saw someone's death, starting with Nathaniel Sr. and the pilot played by Richard Jenkins and continuing on to the beginning of each episode, you'd see the death of the week fade to white and then the title. Um, and the, the title was also like the name of the person that died and like the year that they were born to the year, like their headstone. Yeah. So when it came to the finale of Six Feet Under, the show's creator and this person in the writer's room that he cannot remember subverted the closed loop that he had set up in the pilot of the show and every episode after so that we see all the characters that we love and their organic perfect the their organic perfect ending of their of their lives so from the cast do you want to let's do some dramatic readings you want to be francis conroy oh yes I love her. I met her once. Oh, I'll tell how? you about that. She's Please. one of my first celebrity sightings in Los Angeles. I would. Oh. And I really freaked out. I only know her as Ruth Fisher. That's the I've seen her in eight million things. I'm like, oh, it's Ruth Fisher. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because she was so immortal in that role. Yeah, incredible. So this is Frances Conroy. When I got the final script, I just started crying. It was a very rarefied piece of writing that Alan did. It was just so extraordinary and delicate. And I would say that her 
moment, the like with the the moment that she passes in this is when I also start crying. Yeah, it's a good drop off point. It is a good one. <laughs> yeah. uh, Richard Jenkins says, "Can you imagine not doing that? If someone had not figured that out, or that thought hadn't occurred to somebody, it is the perfect way to end it." This is Michael C. Hall. I'll be Michael C. Hall. Yeah, of course you will. We were all working very hard, and the script for the next episode comes while you're shooting the previous one. It was the same with the finale script. But when I read it, I thought, as I think the audience did when they saw it, of course. I'd never seen something so simultaneously surprising and satisfyingly obvious as the way that show ended. And once that first card comes up, you're just there as the waves continue to crash over you. Freddie Rodriguez says, I'd never seen anything like that. I'd never read anything like that. I'd never been a part of anything that ended that way. And I felt that it was apropos to what the show meant to me and what it did for television. It didn't surprise us that Alan came up with something like that because he didn't, um, because he's Alan. But then to see it come out and see people's reactions to it, even 10 years later, is really gratifying. So in the finale of the of the series, we see all of our characters flash forwards to their own deaths in the future with the show's trademark fade to white all over the Sia song that we've been talking about today. Rolling Stone called it one of the most finely executed hours of television and a fitting send off for a series that found beauty in life's most tragic moments. The final episode alone was nominated for five Emmys. Amazing. Um And if we have a minute, I want to talk a little bit about how music was overlaid on the show and like Mm. just the general use of music. Absolutely not. All right. Well, I'm going to go. I'm just going to go. (laughs) I'm just going to do it anyway. I'm just going to do it anyway. I'm just going to steamroll over you. So, you know, from the very beginning, music was a creative component in the making of the show. I think something that I really loved about this show is just it it, it was really keen on both like it had diverse set of like genres and time periods and it, it, it would play like your mo- like super well-known hits like by Radiohead or something mm-hmm. and they would delve into much newer like college Rocky bands like there's a very famous scene on the show where they use uh, Death Cab for Cuties I need you so much closer transatlanticism and the whole group is just singing the you know the main line from that song and that was a very new song then mm-hmm. so um you know, lots of up and coming bands particularly acts on non-commercial radio did get placements on six feet under like an early career arcade fire the dandy warhols uh one of my old favorites from the early oos uh Bl- black rebel motorcycle club phoenix interpol imogen heap the aforementioned death cab um then on the sort of higher profile and you had Radiohead, Coldplay, uh, Joni Mitchell, PJ Harvey, Nina Simone. There was a real eclectic mix of genres across the decades. And that's actually more to to, to reuse or to use a, a really, really popular song is, in my opinion, far more difficult than to to, than to find something that no one knows about because when you use a really really popular song in a in a project everyone associates it with the last time that they heard it right it is very easy for the audience to lose focus and think about their relationship with that song from before and so you have to have a real talent and and real placement skills to get people to not lose focus and to keep paying attention to the scene even though they're you're using a song that's very very familiar music is just like used to really like delve into each character's histories their motivations and uh, even off-screen characters like like we were saying before like Richard Jenkins character the 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 family patriarch dies in the first episode and you kind of get the sense that um everyone's kind of playing catch up with him like mm-hmm. like well, now that he's gone did 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 any of us ever really know him because they keep like dis- discovering uh evidence in his life that it just kind of goes unexplained about like Nate having just come home um to sort of take over the family business discovers that his father used to he bartered uh uh, an empty room above an Indian restaurant as a form of payment for a funeral, and this, and so he would just use His, this like, room, bachelor crash pad, or kind whatever. kind of, yeah, yeah. But but it's like the whole mystery is what did he use this room for? Why did he need this room? And um, Nate finds a stack of records 
in that room and then puts on the Amboy Dukes' uh, Journey to the Center of the Mind. And then while that song is playing, Nate like kind of goes through a like a bunch of visualizations of scenarios of what on earth his father could be could have been up to and like what necessitated a need for this room. Yeah, I mean music character specific music at its best just feels like part of the costume, part of the wardrobe, right? And I think a, a big theme for this episode and a big theme for Six Feet Under is well, of course, right? Of course this is how we have to end the series. Of course Rachel Griffiths is is dancing around to PJ Harvey in in her apartment in her house because like that feels so grooved into her character and 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 like notched into who the 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 DNA of the character and the DNA of the show that it is that is a very very difficult thing to pull off that every single character has that like of course they listen to this moment yeah and you've got you know Claire Fisher the youngest daughter of uh, she I think you meet her she's in high school and then she she moves over into college which is art school because her character is an artist and she mostly listens to like Death Cab for Cutie and then you know whatever mm-hmm. other indie rock artist was popping at the time but on Claire this was this was my this was my big secret for you so do you know why the show ends with Claire's perspective. Uh, I think I've read interviews Dang. that illuminate why, but Pers- I'm just going to tell you because it, it's sort of like a passing of the torch, right? It is, but Claire is, according to Alan Ball, the the POV of the show, even though Nate is the main character, he, he Alan Ball, created Claire to be a proxy for himself. He was the youngest sibling in his family, and he his personality and his uh, likes and dislikes and prejudices and st- and whatever else came out through Claire. So, uh, your final scene in this series has the version of its creator by its creator uh, driving away and kind of saying goodbye to all of the characters that it, it, it she he has created. I love that. I did not actually know that. Hell yeah. We're going to take a quick break and you might hear a couple of ads. After the break, you'll hear our conversation with Gary Calamar and Thomas Golovich. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. My name is Gary Calamar. I am a music supervisor. I'm Thomas Golubich. I'm a, a music supervisor. Been a music freak since I saw the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan Show at my grandparents' house in the Bronx in 1964 and then never looked back. I've worked at record stores. I've managed bands. I'm a radio DJ still. But my, my main job, my day job, is as music supervisor. And I've worked on, of course, Six Feet Under with Thomas and... Um, House, Dexter, Weeds, um, The Man in the High Castle. I worked with Gary Calamar on Six Feet Under, and uh, since then, that was early in our careers. I was also at KCRW as a DJ there at the time, and I've worked on a number of different projects over the years, including Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul, uh, a show called Halt and Catch Fire, uh, a show called Ray Donovan. Uh, I worked on a show called Sneaky Pete, uh, The Walking Dead, which was an AMC series, I'm currently working on, oh my goodness, uh, Poker Face, which is a new series with Ryan Johnson and Natasha Leone. Lots of very different projects right wow. now. A couple of real underachievers here. <laughs> um, well, it's a real pleasure to have you guys on. I've probably already talked Gary's ear off too many times about what a Six Feet Under fan I am. So um, it's wonderful to have you guys on the inaugural episode of NSYNC. Uh, would love to talk to you a bit about how you first became aware of the series Six Feet Under. I heard about it first. I worked on a, a, one of my very first 
projects was uh, an indie film uh, called uh, Shadow Hours. And I worked on that project and it was a, it was a mess. Uh, essentially, the director and the producer got into a fight. One was financing it, one was building it, and they stopped talking to each other. And they sent me in with a new set of editors to completely change the entire sound of the show. And it was a mess. Um, we got it done and then the, sh the film got picked up at Sundance. Gary had a film as well at Sundance. We both had independent movies at Sundance that year, which was super fun. Um, and that uh, assistant editor reached out and told me about a project for HBO, a pilot, um, and said you should read the script or see if you can get involved. So I reached out to Lori Jo Nemhauser, who was the post-production producer at the time, and just said I'd love to get a chance to look at it. And she was very skeptical because I didn't have any credits at the time. Really, I'd like two. And uh, I kept on cajoling, and finally she said, well, I'll send you a script, and you can let us know. We have a problem. We've got too much expensive music, and we don't quite know how to afford it, and would love your creative ideas. Um, and that started the whole process where Gary and I realized we could probably do the project better together than apart. So uh, it was an opportunity for us to work together. And I think neither, we both had experience. I think Gary had more experience than I did at the time. But it seemed like it would be a better project to do together. So when we got hired, we basically dove into the project together from the first episode on. I know that you probably saw the overall uh, like log line and what the show would be about ostensibly. But did you go into it with any ideas of the type of music you'd want to select and like any any uh, philosophy for how you'd want to select music for this series that perhaps differed from previous work you had done? I mean, one of the things that was really clear was it was a family story, uh, which meant that we had different characters in that family that we got a chance to kind of sketch out what kind of music they would listen to. And Gary can kind of cover this as well. But I think we had a lot of fun in figuring out what would Nate listen to and what would David listen to. David was closeted gay in the first episode, and it was like interesting to figure out like where would his music taste be and what would happen if he got into a relationship and he was able to open up more and, and where would he land? And Claire was sort of an angry teenager and we thought, well, where would she evolve into? And we thought a lot about Ruth and sort of like the idea of like, what was Ruth's private life like? Like, what did she want? And we had this idea at some point along the lines that she loved the idea of being a dancer and she liked the idea of having like ballerina type music. There was a daintiness to it. So I think we had lots of interesting ideas of the characters and what they would listen to. And we just kind of played those ideas against each other. And I think we all just kind of learned as we went along, even Alan Ball and Alan Poole, you know, were not, I mean, Alan Ball, I don't think was all that experienced as a, as a showrunner. You know, I think we did have some initial ideas, like Thomas said, and we did put together playlists for the different characters. Nathaniel turned out to be a Peggy Lee fan, although in a, in a secret life he was also a Ted Nugent fan. Uh, of course, we needed classical music for the uh, funerals, and Nate and, you know, everybody. Uh, Brenda turned out to be a KCRW fan, which was right in our wheelhouse, because we both worked at KCRW at the time. Um, but I think it was just sort of a learning experience, you know, from episode one, you know, we, it just all sort of developed, you know, for, for all of us, musically and, and otherwise. I think another thing which was really fun was we had the teasers, which were kind of like the, 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 the death of a character that would lead us in. And I think that led us to some really fun adventures with using music as counterpoint or allowing mixtures of comedy and horror and being very genuine in some situations and being a little bit ironic in others. And that was, I think, a fun learning experience for us. And that was kind of built into the premise of the show. You mentioned a little bit about um, providing a soundtrack or a playlist for each character. Did you divide the character? Like, did Gary, did you take, you know, Brenda and Francis Conroy and and, and Thomas, you took Nate and David? Or, or is it something that you collaborated with each other on every playlist? We pretty much collaborated together on, on every playlist. You know, yeah, and that, in those days, we were very, very close uh, working-wise. Um, and, yeah, I mean, we would go over everything. You say I that mean, so we, wistfully. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. But we would, you know, overdo it. I mean, we would work with our music editor, who we drove crazy, and we would, like, cut in all of these songs, you know, prior to playing them for Alan Ball and Alan Poole. And, you know, I won't say we were taking advantage of him. We all were just learning how to learning the process. But uh, I don't think either of us do it that way these days. I know I don't. I think we have different sensibilities, but we're also friends. And I really respect and admire Gary. So 
a lot of times like when he would jettison an idea that I was really excited about, it would make me think about whether he was right after all, you know? And I think mm. that there's something very valuable about being able to, you know, just sort of be excited about an idea and then realize it's not a good idea. And having someone to bounce those ideas off is really helpful. I think it's it's one of those things that I like working with a, with a team always simply because I think it's really helpful to get feedback and you know, we're all trying to do the best job possible. You also mentioned a little bit that, that there's a little bit of a sense of figuring it out as you went along. I'm wondering how much of the music was influenced by the actors and their performances. Specifically, you mentioned that Francis Conroy's character, Ruth, had this kind of lilting ballerina sort of music that was associated with her. And to me, that just is a reflection of like the way she speaks, right? She, like the, her character's voice is that kind of lilting, flowery uh, cadence. I'm wondering if that's something that was informed by her performance or something that you came up with organically or like kind of in parallel with her performance. I would say informed by the performances. I mean, I think one of the really fun parts of music supervision for me is getting to know and falling in love with the characters over the course of time. Now, when you're doing a film, it's a much more strategic thing. And you kind of go in there with an idea of what you want to build. It's almost like a philosophy that you're setting up. I think the cinematographers go through that. I think, you know, I think the casting people do as well. It's like you say, I'm going after a certain type of actor, or I'm looking for certain types of shots, or I want the camera to be pulled back a little further. And I don't want people in the frame completely. And there's a certain experience you get with that. We work the same way. And a lot of it really is off of the actors and their performances. You know, I'm thinking about Breaking Bad. Like I know when I was working on that early on, like how we dealt with uh, Aaron Paul's character, Jesse, was really very much like we had some ideas, we tried those ideas out. And then as we got to know him more, we were able to shift with him and with those ideas. And I think that that was sort of a valuable part. If we hadn't paid attention to his performance and how unique he was, and the same applies, I think, to Francis Conroy, who's an incredible actress. We had access to the dailies at some point, and I remember just watching her different takes and seeing what the actress is thinking about and how she's delivering different options for her other actors and for editorial to choose from. It informed, I think, for us that there are smart ways of thinking about how you can help to inform that moment with something that captures something that may be in the subtext of mm. the scene that the actor clued in on and that we can kind of help you know, bring out a little further. The song that plays over the, like, the final scene, it's, you know, I feel like it's been talked about many times because it is so well known at this point. It gets, you know, it, I, I believe it was an, an entire subject of uh, an oral history on Vulture, which I really enjoyed reading. And I appreciate you guys sitting down with us to talk about it again, because it is just uh, that game changing I feel like for the art of music supervision itself. Um, but kind of going back to the beginning, um, when you guys first kind of realized like how the, sh the series would end, did you like to what extent did you sit down with um, Alan Ball before picking this song and um, putting it out there? As I recall, well, first of all, I, I was reminded that we actually introduced that song in the fifth season promo, the teaser Trailer. promo before the. the the season aired so we and it worked very nicely in, in the promo um, although we had no idea that we would bring it back I mean we went through many other ideas um, as I recall and my memory is a little hazy but I think Alice a Alan Ball just told me and told us that Claire was driving into the great unknown I don't think he mentioned the niece initially about the deaths of all the characters I think you know that kind of evolved in, in his mind and in his writing but I think it was just, as I said, it was just Claire driving off to her, her new life. And um, I remember we did put together, you know, a nice cassette, maybe at the time, or CD, burn CD of, of other choices. And, um, you know, there were some other strong ones as well. But uh, ultimately, Alan picked Breathe Me, which uh, we are very thankful for because it works so beautifully. And as I've said before, I, I think this the stars were aligned. I mean, it was such a beloved show. It was such a great, you know, beautiful written ending to the show and, and well executed. And, you know, the song just just worked beautifully. I mean, a shout out to our editor at the time, Michael Ruscio, who cut it to make it work so beautifully and extend the, the original recording. And Bruno Roussel for the music editing, which was substantial. Do you recall what those other choices would have been? 
that you were like oh name names (laughs) i don't recall i uh i wish i did but i don't recall but i'll tell you i did also you know i taught a class at ucla extension a music supervision class and the final one of the final projects was to put a new song into that scene I'd love to take that challenge. <laughs> yes. Lime well, and the coconut. Although none worked quite as brilliantly as, as Sea as Breathe Me, but there were some other, you know, like I say, the, the, the canvas was beautifully laid out for, you know, a lot of different songs that, that could have worked really nicely. Um, you know, this one turned out to be the best and somewhat historic, but, uh, but other songs worked in there as well. I think you, you mentioned once before, probably many times, that um, you had found the song originally just from DJing. Is that... Did I remember that correctly? I think this song goes back to the the, uh, the 07 record, uh, in a way, because 07 released a record, I forgot exactly what year, but around this time period, and Sia was a guest vocalist on one of the tracks, and we ended up putting the song Distractions into the show, and I don't remember whether it was Gary or myself, but one of us had reached out to her management, who were in Australia, and they sent a first record over, which... I certainly wasn't terribly impressed with. I was like, okay, you know, fine. And then they sent a second record, which was Color the Small One, I think was the name of it. And I remember Gary and I both really liked it a lot. And I think that we ended up pitching another song from that same record in the previous season and probably also pitched um, Breathe Me to the Allens in that time period. And I think that's where the idea began to percolate. I'm, I'm vaguely, tell me if I'm getting this wrong, but I feel like that might have been how it all evolved. I just know I had a a love for that song, Breathe Me, and I was playing it on the radio. And, you know, as with other songs for the show, I mean, it just sort of carried over when it was time to pitch, you know, ideas for that initial promo. And then for this final scene, you know, I thought this one could work, you know, I thought others could work as well. It's interesting because conventional wisdom would say, okay, you receive the scene or you receive the scripted scene and you run through a million songs trying to find the one that is like the, the... the glass slipper right and it seems like you just were like looking for opportunities for this like magical collaboration of a song that you already had used and wanted to potentially use again what was so special about this what like what was the secret sauce of the song explain to us why no song has ever worked as well in the classes that you've taught you know, it's hard to say what that magic is. Um, I mean, it was just a beautiful song, beautifully recorded, great production. I think there's one part of the song that always kind of gets me a little choked up is when Sia says, you know, be my friend. And I think I forget who we see at that point, but I'm, I'm actually getting slightly choked up right now. But when she says, see my friend, it just sort of opened up and it's just... You know, it's funny when you put a simple lyric like that, see my friend, to some beautiful music, all of a sudden it becomes, you know, it it, it takes it to another level. So at what point you said that you weren't quite aware that it was going to be the flash forwards to the deaths. Did you, were you notified of that before you saw the cut? Did you just see it for the first time in the cut? What was it like seeing that scene with that song placement for the first time when it all finally clicked together? I think we were honestly very nervous because number one, this is, this is a sequence which is working outside of the comfort zone of every department. Like we were not like, you know, doing futuristic costume design or, you know, like there was a lot of stuff that was way outside of the comfort zone. And the early versions of the sequence were really tricky and they looked rough. And I think I was certainly feeling like, oh my God, we're going to jump the shark on our final moment. Hmm. Additionally, we had a song that was, I'm guessing here in the timings, but I want to say it was like five minutes and 40 seconds in full length. And we had a sequence that was, or 520, and it was 640 was the length of the sequence, which meant that we had to extend the song pretty dramatically. And I think one of the magical parts of it was the music editing. And again, shout out to Bruno Roussel, who did a fantastic job of taking an unmastered instrumental with a mastered vocal version and somehow being able to match them so we didn't notice that there were audio differences in it. So there's an enormous amount of technical work that went into all of it. And I think that's sort of a key part that's important to know about this job is that it's very collaborative, meaning every department has to kind of do their own bit of magic and it has to feel seamless, you know? And I think finally, when the thing was done and all the visual effects were done and all of, you know, it was shot and edited in such a beautiful manner and the song was able to carry the whole sequence, it had a cumulative effect 
But that was also masking an enormous amount of work that went into every department to try to make that thing work, you know? And I think it could easily be laughable to see Keith climbing out of like some future, you know, armored truck with, with cool hubcaps, you know? It's like, it was an attempt to make things look you know, futuristic and, you know, or even like, you know, Billy nodding off with Brenda, which I think I laughed the first time I looked at it because it looked so ridiculous. But the truth is when you have an emotional power and you're able to move with momentum, you forget about all those things. And in a weird way, all of those little crimes that we were worried about, the sort of forest for the trees situation, really kind of, it, we looked at a forest and the forest was really moving. And I think that's one of those things that's really nice about this process of getting it to the finish line and knowing that you got to have faith it's going to work and you got to work really hard to make sure that it feels seamless. So nobody has a moment of disengagement. And I think because nobody had a moment of disengagement, it was a very satisfying ending. Can you describe the kind of before and after effect of when the series ultimately ended? Like, what did you feel the reaction would be before it um, actually aired on HBO? And then how did you observe the audience's reaction? I felt pretty confident that we had, you know, done something really good. You know, again, the, the scene itself was so amazing and it was the finale of this great series. Um, and after seeing it and after seeing, you know, the final edit, um, I recall feeling very confident and very, you know, proud that we were able to, you know, add something to this great series and this great final scene. And, um, and yeah, the response was pretty unanimous that you got, you know, it was an amazing use of, of the song and a great music supervision moment. I was not as confident as Gary was. <laughs> because I think, especially when you're working on a TV show, you're so close inside of it. And you're very hyper aware of all of the limitations or all the things that you're worried are not going to work or all the things like you're invested in making it work. And, and for me, at least, I felt nervous right up to the very ending and was very relieved when people responded as positively as they did. There's plenty of good songs and there's plenty of TV shows and I don't really work on them, but that, you know, music is kind of random and it just feels good and just bounces around in the background. Um, I don't specialize in those type of shows. Like to me, it has to really speak to the character and speak to the story in a compelling way. And I'd rather not have music if it's not saying anything. And I think that's another part of the discipline of the ability to say, we don't need music here. Why are we adding it in there? What are we trying to communicate? And so that conversation, I think, is a really valuable one. And it's great when you can do it with someone that you trust. I know that we're running out of time, but uh, I, did, I didn't want to let you go before we could talk a little bit about the long tail of just the industry that you work in uh, as far as this needle drop goes. Um, how did, did you feel that selecting Breathe Me for the ending of Six Feet Under moved the needle at all in terms of how we talk about music supervision today? You know, did you notice an evolution like just in the way that we talk about that art? Don't be modest. I think it did, you know, up the ante a, a little bit. I mean, I just think it showed what the possibilities can be of how a song could work in a scene. But it's rare to have a scene like that, you know, a, a canvas like that to put a song up against. I think our job is in many ways to both make sure that the general approach to music is all working really well, that there's a palette that's being followed, throwing different ideas at different times, and then a lot of the best ideas kind of come through that and they make sense because we were able to kind of keep and curate that approach. You know, I think there's a lot of this hero, like you picked it, how did you pick it and so forth. I think ultimately it's really like being curatorial in the sense of bringing the right people in, getting the right resources together, keeping the conversation about the characters and making sure the good ideas make it to the top regardless of where they come from. And I think that's sort of like the best work in my mind is pretty ego-free. Mm. I will, I will say that I'm so very proud to have been part of that Six Feet Under series and the finale. And, um, you know, I think that uh, I often joke that I'm going to have that song playing on my tombstone when people walk by. It'll trigger something and, and Breathe Me will come out. And that would be just fine. Should I go that direction in my, in my, for my funeral? But uh, that would certainly be appropriate. In 2015... Alan Ball actually told Vulture that all the songs he considered to end the show on, none of them were as poetic and poignant as Sia's. Uh, Ball also told Calamar that he, quote, wanted something hopeful and wistful, but with a certain feel that they're searching for something. Definitely tracks as far as 
Breathe Me's arc goes. Oh, certainly, yeah. Yeah. And as Peter Krause also said in that Vulture piece, Alan's point in making the show was to help people feel more alive and make decisions in life to be more alive because it's going to end. Since it aired, Six Feet Under is still considered the, basically the holy grail for series finale episodes. Younger listeners might be more familiar with Sia's post-chandelier career, but Breathe Me is almost entirely the reason Sia became a mainstream star. Uh, more than 15 years later, it's still talked about. This, this last episode of the TV show, Six Feet Under, is still talked about as one of the best, if not the best endings to a TV series in history. Alan Ball is one of those directors who will talk about hiring the people that he feels are best suited for a project and then just getting out of their way, Mm -hmm. which is, I think, a really fantastic management philosophy as someone who's had like too many bad bosses. And Ball himself admitted that he did not know where the show was going to go after the first episode. And in, in, Casting the actors, shooting the episode, creating the writer's room. He was kind of listening to what the show wanted to be and what the actors were giving him. And it creates a really satisfying feedback loop as opposed to having to source every idea all by yourself, which is when your show runs dry after 10 episodes. Thanks for thanks for doing this. Uh, this was fun. I like this. I like this too. Let's do another one soon. When, when soon? When would you think that we should do another one of these? Perhaps next week. Next week does work. But until then, you can find us on the internet, on our social media platforms, which we don't have set up yet, but it will, it'll be set up by the time you hear this. And you can shoot us an email. Once again, our email will be set up at some point. Um, but interact with us however you get your podcasts and tune in next week when we'll be at this all again. And for In Sync, the music podcast, I'm Aviv Rubenstein. I am Rachel Brodsky. Thank you so much for listening in with us. We'll talk to you next week. Hi, I'm Kyle. Can We Geek About is a new podcast from Gotham West. Each week, JJ and I will delve into the geekier side of pop culture from our favorites in science fiction and fantasy to new releases and even maybe rag on some absolute flops. We promise that even if you don't like what we have to say, you'll like how we say it. But anyway, can we geek about? Did you really need me here for this? I just needed a ride. (sighs) Can We Geek About? Give us a listen, subscribe or follow wherever you get your podcasts. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, Place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.